Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom DeSena, from the Department of Communication, Journalism, and Public Relations at Oakland University. My guest today is Alyssa Court, the editor with David Wallace of Going for Broke, Living on the Edge in the World's Richest Country. Going for Broke is a collection of compelling, hard-hitting essays, poems, and photos that expose what our punitive social systems do to so many Americans. The book is a product of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, and it illustrates what late journalist Barbara Ehrenreich described as the real face of journalism today. Not million-dollar-a-year anchor persons, but low-wage workers and downwardly spiraling professionals. Alyssa Quart is the executive director of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project and an acclaimed author of poetry, including Thoughts and Prayers, and nonfiction works such as Branded, The Buying and Selling of Teenagers, Squeezed, Why Our Families Can't Afford America, and most recently, Bootstrapped, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream. Alyssa Court, welcome to the New Books Network. Oh, thank you so much, Tom. It's great to be here. Uh, So I'd like to start, before we get into the text of the book, by asking you to talk a little bit about the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, uh, as well as how you got involved with it. So Barbara Ehrenreich started it in around 2012. It was she had this idea for it because she didn't think it should only be the rich that were writing about poverty. And she had also seen uh, a generation shift where she had gone from uh, people being paid $2, $3 a word to people barely making 50 cents a word. This is like uh, freelance reporters are paid by the word. She saw the, the, acclaimed essayists on questions of uh, mobility being people like David Brooks, who had, uh, you know, probably, you know, turned out essays around deadbeat dads on their way to Bridgehampton. And she didn't want that to be the only people who were uh, speaking about this. She wanted media to be more inclusive than it had even been in the past. But post-2008, you know, we know this from you know, the rallying cry of Occupy 99%, you know, there was a lot of people who were no longer able to participate as media workers, as writers, as photographers, as audio people, filmmakers, etc. And she really wanted to at least give them a chance. So we, I, I met her around that time, and then we sort of created it together, the organization. So I'm, I'm never sure if I should call myself like a founder because it was her idea or like a co-creator. So let's, I just kind of created, it's called that. And it became this quite a substantial organization. We've uh, funded uh, at this point, probably thousands of pieces and a third of our contributors are lower income and uh, something over a third are people of color and the majority of uh, two thirds are women. And the reason these statistics are important is, is that at this point, that they, they, that is not reflective of what the media looks like. And so this was a, a, a statistic from 20 years ago that 10% of the media is working class. So the idea was to try to include these folks, get these stories out there, co-publish them in really major places, and also change the story around poverty and inequality. So I say these are voices, we're raising voices about inequality. This is media for, by, and about financial struggle in America. It, it, it's interesting. Uh, a few, couple of years ago, I interviewed, um, oh gosh, I'm going to, Christopher Martin, and he has a book out about how 
the media covers labor issues, um, or, or I should put it more succinctly, how the labor the the media doesn't cover labor issues, and and I think what you're describing is is sort of part and parcel of the problem. And he doesn't really explore this too much, but it's that really most media folks come from a different class of people that aren't as worried about labor issues. And so they don't, they don't recognize it the same way. I mean, I think that's true. I also do think there is a resurgence of labor reporting, maybe partially because some of these independent reporters have now really experienced what it's like to not uh, be able to make a living wage. I say brain works become gig work. And that's very much true for journalism. And I think, you know, you have, I just uh, wrote about this. There's new worker co-ops, like something called Flaming Hydra uh, that includes labor reporters. There are labor reporters, like people we support, you know, Hamilton Nolan um, and a number of other people we've supported, uh, people writing about their labor, you know, who work as waiters or have worked in shoe stores. So the emphasis is to try to be part of this uh, change. Because I do think, I think in some ways, labor is getting uh, a, new, a new burst of attention due to SAG, the SAG strike uh, and due to a lot of, uh, you know, journalistic entities becoming or people trying to make them into union shops, you know, HarperCollins strikes, et cetera. You know, there's publishers who've been striking, but, but yeah, point well taken. Like it was not, there's not enough of labor coverage and it's often uh, the emphasis is on the companies and how the owners are, (laughs) are doing Like there's sort of a, a a slight uh, tone around that. If you, you look, read the business section, for instance, it's, it's not necessarily taking the perspective of the rank and file at all. So yeah, right, exactly. And that, and I, again, it's one of the things that um, the Chris documents is, and there was, uh, I was traveling not too long ago, and there was a story about um, uh, flight attendants who were protesting, and and the, the point of view wasn't from the flight attendants, but the disruptions to travelers. No, exactly. So it's like not Sarah Nelson, but right. or or her, her the incredible movement she's led. But yeah, the travel disruption. When in truth, they're related. You know, like you have an underpaid workforce, and you know, not enough um, breaks, and you know, um, cleaning crews that are uh, privatized, and companies that come in and out, and then if somebody gets ill, it's like there's no backup because a lot of the stuff is just um, uh, scattered. There's just very few people on hand to, at any time to, to, to man planes, you know. So I think like that, there it's related. So I think the idea is to actually not to take away the, the, the consumer pain, which is substantial, you know, but to say that it's interrelated with the pain of the people who are serving the consumer, you know. Yeah, and then the next thing you know, the doors pop off. Um, yeah. So <laughs> yeah, too. And then, yeah, pain. Yeah, uh, just yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'd like to get into the book. Um, so on, I, I would, if, if you would read from uh, page one. Yeah. Uh, just that paragraph we talked about earlier. These are just. Two of the writers, whose essays you will find in this anthology, a testament to American life during the lingering pandemic, with its consequent exacerbated inequality, looming economic crises, and untrammeled reliance on the efforts of those paid the lowest wages. 
It has been a time when brain work became, became gig work and when journalists have been poster children for the increasingly precarious middle class, or what I call the middle precariat. The writers represented here may have lost their jobs, their homes, or even the narrative thread of their lives, but in confronting those hardships, they have gained valuable insights into problems facing millions in this country. And lest you think what follows will just make you sad, please rest assured that bold and fresh ideas about how we can house the unhoused, for instance, arise from these essays, offering hope and ways forward. So I'd like to ask, uh, this is something that I I begin with all my guests, um, but it seems especially relevant to this work. What brought you to Going for Broke, or more succinctly, why this book, why now? So I'd been wanting to do this for years. I think even when Barbara was alive, I discussed this with her, you know, early. Because I was thinking, one of the things was I wanted to get uh, kind of a an object in the world, you know, all these nonprofits exist now, media nonprofits, and we're all, we're dependent on like platforms, either we're from co-publishing or our own platforms and the digital, but I, you know, I'm still a books person. I've written seven of my own and I like, I read books. I read, you know, books on paper stock. You know, I, I can't even read a Kindle. Um, I don't think I retain information from a Kindle. I don't know if you feel that way, but like, so I really wanted to like honor the work that we'd done and the honor the contributors work and Barbara's work and my work and, you know, just have something that could be taught in classes. So that that's been something that I've been thinking. And I mean, I can't understate how, how happy I was to give 50 or so people, a number of whom had never appeared in a book in like standing in a book, because I think these essays, some of them are like, they're moving and they're beautiful and they're literary, you know, they're worthy of a book. And I guess that that was my thinking around it. Yeah, I get the the essays contained in here really are are very beautiful. Uh, at least many of them are. Um, is there something though about this particular moment in our culture that um, that re- really requires this book? I think so. I mean, I think we, as we were saying, like we have a media that's you know. Uh, jobs have decreased 50% in 2023 alone. It's a bloodbath. We're having, uh, you know, everything from Sports Illustrated to The Intercept to Pitchfork to GQ. My joke was if these people, if these magazines were publication, uh, these publications were people, they wouldn't have spoken to each other in high school. I mean, they're they're <laughs> pretty disparate. Like GQ and Pitchfork, they're not the same. Intercept, Sports Illustrated. But like, I think what they have in common is that they were people there are a lot of people who were writing and doing, still doing layout and production and illustration and all this other stuff who are no longer have jobs and are going to be part of this middle precariat if they aren't already. So part of this is to sort of raise the alarm and to bring awareness. Part of it is to, uh, to deepen and vary people's understanding of what it means to be uh, precarious and, so to me, being precarious doesn't just mean being, you know, uh, the incredibly poor. You know, it also could mean things like not being able to afford a dentist, as Ray Suarez couldn't, and not, um, or having a sister who's unhoused, who you're not quite rich enough to like put away in a institution when they need it, and um, you have to watch she falls off the map. And that's not the writer's own experience. The writer is part of a traditional, more traditional middle-class world, but she, she doesn't have the, 
the savings or income to like totally protect her sister from her downward mobility. So there's a lot of variations or there are people who um, had really traumatic pregnancies because they were on Medicaid. So these, and, and to me, things like reproductive rights uh, or airline travel or, um, you know, uh, drugs, obviously, uh, a whole range of criminal justice, obviously, but, you know, things that people might not think of as income inequality issues, I think they also are income inequality issues. So I think, so you tell the story of, uh, you know, reproductive rights, but not from the perspective of the person who can afford to get on a plane and fly from Louisiana or Alabama, but from the person who is having to have an unwanted child. Um, and, that's a reproductive rights story, but it's also an economic story. Well, or even the the one that got to me, and again, I, and I'm I'm not, I don't consider myself an animal person. I don't have any pets, but the story about the the <laughs> the person who couldn't afford veterinary care for their dog was just <laughs> it was just heart wrenching. Yeah, and and the idea with that is to uh, well, we got that story in a magazine called The Bark which was a pet, and I joke, it's the only story my mother-in-law would have read of ours because she's <laughs> really into animals. Um, that, so that's a whole kind of readership that does not think about inequality. And that that is part of like the secret sauce, I think, of Economic Hardship Reporting Project that we're beyond uh, platform agnostic. We like seek out places that might not normally have this kind of uh, content to show it, their readers and their kind of followers that that there's uh, there is an intersection that being a pet owner intersects with inequality that um, being you know a, a young a young Gen Zer you know if you're if we get stuff in like Cosmo or Refinery Twenty Nine that that intersects with income inequality you know. So the book is def- divided into five thematic sections, the body, the home, family, work, and class. And, and this is a question that perhaps would only concern an academic such as myself. But I need to ask, did these themes emerge from your encounter with these contributions? Or was there something about them that made you search for examples? Well, it's so funny because like, I actually did create these categories. And I we went through a lot of different variations on like, what's what. And I think we had other categories at some point. I mean, the body was definitely inspired post Dobbs. I mean, I, I, when the decision came down, I realized that we had a lot of material here that was kind of body horror around um, income inequality and also disability. And I was like, I really want to foreground that because again, that's not necessarily the way that people necessarily go into, uh, questions about mental health or questions about um, loss of sight um, and, you know, as, as, as income inequality uh, uh, stories. So I think that is, um, that to me was, and obviously questions around abortion. Um, and then I, I was really struck though by the ways in which some of these sto- st- essays, you know, like family, home, um, they had this these very uh, mm, li- like quotidian or uh, experientially uh, universal qualities. And I, I guess I wanted to amplify that. I wanted people to read this who thought about um, 
real estate or home, you know, or, or what the home means to, again, be drawn to this work and see their own experience in it, even though they've never maybe been unhoused. Uh, or family, people are attracted to that kind of uh, storytelling, you know, about, uh, you know, we have an essay, when my father called me about his unemployment. And it's like, I feel like a lot of people could potentially identify with that. And so I was trying to highlight the universality of some of these experiences. And then at the end, class was, I didn't want to shy away from the fact that that is part of this, that it's not just a question of money. It's also a question of, you know, mobility, of what they call in education circles, accumulated advantage, you know, where some people just know how to work systems and other people don't. And the reason they don't is because they, I'm just talking to someone today who has a uh, who has medical problems, but because she's a doctor's daughter, she has no money. But because she's a doctor's daughter, she was able to articulate her medical condition. So that to me is a class which is more ineffable in some ways than income. It's not always the same thing. And so I guess I was interested in that. Um, you know, I've read a lot of like Marx, you know, and uh, that you know I, I am interested. I wouldn't say I'm a Marxist or something, but I am really interested in that matrix. And I think. There's an emphasis now on things like questions like opportunity and mobility. But I think just class itself is also quite fascinating. Um, so, yeah. So let's let's turn our attention to, to each of these different sections. Um, and we'll start where you do with the body. The stories in this section run a, a, a gamut. I mean, there's stories of disabilities, uh, a, a, what I consider a fairly chilling story about selling the body in the form of its plasma uh, to one of the recurring themes, as you mentioned just a minute ago, concerns abortion rights in a post-Dobbs world. Uh, So I wonder if you'd like to discuss your own contribution to the collection here. Um, Yeah. So what what do I think my own Wait, say that again. Yeah. The last part. So, yeah, just this is this is where you actually have a, a, a contribution t- in in the you have your own essay in in this section. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, I included that. I mean, whatever we decided to include that, just because it was quite popular. And again, it was the way that I like to try to have these things be somewhat intersectional. And I, I'm not somebody who's on the poverty line in any way, but I have experienced income inequality, at, you know, at times and having these, this pregnancy just showed me the side of, uh, what it, what, how hard being pregnant can be. I mean, I had hyperemesis where you, <laughs> it's kind of gross, but you get, you're basically sick and you can barely eat for nine months. And it's the kind of thing where, I don't know, do you have kids? I've won. Yvonne, um, if you've ever been, been pregnant or been living with a pregnant person, like everybody says after three months, oh, it's coming to an end. This was like, no, <laughs> it's like you kept vomiting the whole time. And I just kept thinking because I'd done a lot of work on choice uh, and I've done produced some films on uh, abortion, abortion rights, including a film called Jackson that like about that last clinic in Mississippi, that like if if I had been uh, in that situation of some of the people at who were seeking uh, abortions and unable to get them and vomiting all the time and incredibly poor. It's like, this is, this is a level of uh, trauma that people, uh, you know, obviously uh, the the people making these laws are not in touch with because it's pregnancy is really hard and so many things can go wrong. And it, it, I mean, I think a lot of my personal outrage 
stem from some of these experiences. I mean, inevitably they do. I was like, this is just so wrong. This was a wanted child and I was sick for nine months. Can you imagine if it was some, I was carrying um, something I didn't want to, and I was unable to function for that long a time. No, I, I, I don't, again, and obviously I can't imagine it, but but even, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just, it's, to me, it's, it's, it's unthinkable that anyone should have to go through something like that. Um, and, and it's quite common, this hyperemesis thing, yeah. like, like diabetes, preeclampsia, all these other conditions um, that, that, and so these are the things that in the post-ops world where women are being forced to potentially risk themselves, you know, when they don't want to, it's just like, it seems uh, medieval. <laughs> so I guess that, that was why the, that contribution was included. So there's obviously a lot of overlap between each of the themes that that structures the book, um, and these middle sections are are definitely emblematic of that. The idea of home is closely linked to the body, uh, and and each of these stories about the is a story about the precariousness of housing in the U.S. today. And I recognize this is perhaps too large a question, but I want to pose it anyway. Um, reflecting on the contributions in Going for Broke, what should listeners of the NBN understand about home in this, the world's richest country? I mean, I think we need to think about how, um, you know, there, there's just such a level of vulnerability right now around housing. And we, we had a moment during the pandemic where we had eviction moratoria, we had um, people trying to uh, keep people from losing their homes, um, you know, from 2021 to 2022, rents increased by 24%. And, you know, there's, there in my city, New York, they're simply in, continuing to increase. Um, you know, 51% of American households are spending more than 30% of their income on rent. And I wanted to just show how widespread this was, you know, it's like, yeah, it is uh, this poet, because this is also a book that contains something called documentary poetry, which is really cool. It's poetry that's recorded. Uh, So this was somebody who was having trouble um, finding uh, a place to live during the pandemic. She was a single mom, and she wrote this very beautiful piece about her and her daughter. Um, After five generations, she writes, the best I could do was a single room and some money for food. If I am an answer, then is failure my question? Um, and so that was, I found a very beautiful and um, striking piece. Anne Elizabeth Moore has an incredible essay about having been given a house because she was uh, lower income and discovering that that house had been foreclosed on by a black woman and Elizabeth Moore is white in Detroit. So it was kind of like ill-gotten giveaway home. Um, so some of these stories are unique, but they're also, they all circulate around the problem of being rent burdened or the problem of uh, that, that 24% rise in, in the cost of rent. So we're, so I'm talking to you from just outside of Detroit. So yeah, that, that story was um, particularly poignant for us uh, here, here in, here in Michigan. Um, so, and again, there's, again, there's just so many, the, the stories about, this is where the, if I remember correctly, the section where we meet someone who gave someone housing in, put them up in their home. Yeah. So her name's Annabelle Gerwich and she's like right. this 
amazing, funny comedian, actor. But again, like a lot of actors, she was having some uh, income problems and economic instability. And she chose to be participate in this social program. Um, I forget what it was called, but you put up um, people who are unhoused in your home. And what I loved about this piece was it was, it was quite funny and it was um, disarming in the sense that she admitted that she was afraid of her unhoused roommates who had brought a, a rabbit, were highly tattooed. And, the, and then she discovered, and this is just such, which is one of the ways that I feel like these essays really are um, unexpected and, and, and like Chekhovian almost, she discovered that, uh, she was, they were afraid of her (laughs) and, and that, that is actually, I guess, I mean, for me, that's one of the deeper hope of this book that it's like people can see themselves in it or see the other better, you know, but also they can recognize how they, um, the others might see them. And that, that to me, or like the other being the, the unhoused person in this instance, and that that's part of actually connecting, accepting, understanding is um, recognizing that these unhoused folks were afraid of Annabelle yeah. <laughs> when they went into her house. Yeah. And that you know, and again, it, 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 if you look at it from their perspective, it makes perfect sense why they would be. Yeah, yeah, completely. And they were, and the, just the vulnerability. Yeah. And one of the things I, I mean, I mean, I think for us to understand fully our own vulnerability, we have to understand the vulnerability of others. For us to understand others' vulnerability, we have to understand the vulnerability of ourselves. And that's part of why I emphasize the kind of, you know, deep reporting in our work at EHRP, but um, like extreme emotional honesty as much as people can can bear, because I think that's the way that you can cut through the compassion fatigue, that the, the oversaturated attention economy and get to readers. So from the fam, from the, from the home, you turn your attention to uh, a word that uh, in my field, we would call a God term. As a matter of fact, might be the God term of all God terms, uh, the family. Uh, and the contributions here run uh, a sweeping gamut. Um, Elizabeth Kadetsky's reflection on her sister's heroin addiction that you mentioned earlier, or the one that we talked about a minute ago, uh, Bobby Dempsey's piece about affording veterinary medicine. Um, what stands out to you from this collection of essays about how family functions or maybe doesn't for for Americans today? Yeah. So, I mean, with the family, again, I was just trying to get to um, this uh, universal experience that we have. I mean, not entirely, but of living in a, in a family and, um, you know, wanted to include things like uh, people being economically uncertain in the pandemic in a, in a queer marriage. And that it was, again, like this isn't, um, it was a light story in some ways, but it, it really, uh, resonated like that, that, that story got a huge amount of pickup that, uh, Bobby Feisler story. Um, and I also wanted, you know, uh, just highlight that over 140 million American families are impoverished. 
according to the Poor People's Campaign. And um, we need to recognize that and recognize that it's not just like the lone person wandering in the subway who is is unhoused. It's it's often families. Um, and I deal with that. And we deal with that and our, our contributors um, deal with that too. Uh, and just look at the ties that bind. And then also some of the pleasures, you know, like I have somebody who included a recipe um, and it was a recipe and we're actually potentially watching on a, working on another recipe um, that's affordable. But the fact that you can have pleasure it, within uh, economic struggle, it's not just this like depressing march, but like here's an affordable recipe, one that takes it, it, into account how expensive ingredients are and the time tax of making stuff. Um, so yeah, and that, that's part of family life. Yeah. And there's so much here as well about, um, about place, right? I mean, the, the, the family is, is sort of grounded into a place and, and, um, stories about how the Robert, uh, Feisler, is that my pronouncing mm-hmm. yeah, that right? Bobby, yeah. Yeah. Uh, how, you know, being grounded saved his marriage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, they moved back, I think, into his, um, with his partner's family, um, and that that was part of the, the return back to each other, um, was that, that, the realness of living with the family, um, you know, and there's other things like that. We have an essay on, um, uh, West Virginia town, which had, was again, documentary poetry and an essay. And, you know, I think it's important to have, uh, when we're writing about uh, rural cultures, working class cultures, um, uh, co- communities that aren't privileged, that there's still a lot of joy and specificity that has not been fully celebrated. Like it's not to be Pollyanna-ish, but there's like a lot of stuff that is just not seen and 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 not um, uh, not really covered uh, at all. Like uh, the kind of folkways, you know, we're, we're assigning some pieces right now to people. Um, you know, like what, you know, fishing, you know, amateur fishermen in, um, in the South and, and some of their folkways, right? And so like, to me, that's also part of this. It's like not, it's a, uh, our reporters have access to not only the suffering, but also the celebration that maybe mainstream reporters don't. So the, I was particularly drawn to the section of the book on work. Um, for instance, I've been teaching in various ways uh, Kathy Weeks' work for a long time, and I, I very much admire um, all that she's done to sort of lay bare um, what work means for people. Um, there's so much to be said here about her goal of making work visible, uh, but there's two essays here especially that I'd like to discuss uh, for maybe somewhat selfish reasons um, concerning the work of, of what we call contingent academics. Um, in, in so many ways, these are the these are folks who who epitomize so much of what is going on in this book. Uh, highly trained, credentialed, doing professional work, but mostly not making enough to make ends meet. Yeah, absolutely. And it it had a somewhat personal um, thing for me uh, because I had been an adjunct when I was young. You know, my parents taught in community college and then a city college in New York. Um, most, many of my friends are currently adjuncts or have been adjuncts for many years. 
my best friends. And so I'm listening to these tales of them making, struggling to make $7,000 a class, uh, living near the poverty line. And I wrote about that in Squeezed also, the central subject of Squeezed. Uh, my last book was somebody who I, I had a, a term, a depressing term. I came up the hyper-educated poor. And <laughs> that's, that's a lot of, uh, you know, that's a lot of this. And so I, I was particularly drawn to those kind of pieces and, um, you know, we assigned it Gloria Diaz, who wrote about working in a potato chip factory. She was an adjunct that was like inhumane potato chip factory. <laughs> was like, yeah. I think we got rid of the, some of the portions that could be actionable, but there's, you know, descriptions of just like blood on the floor and just in- incredibly intense. And, uh, I'm trying to, what was the other adjunct piece that you, uh, were, oh, oh, oh uh, Gila, Gila Berryman, right? Yeah. Yeah. And just the experience of, and I'd written about this also in Squeezed, of people serving the students, you know, at supermarkets on their, you know, or Uber drivers or that they themselves taught. And then they have to, um, and some of my friends who are adjuncts have actually started to tell their students explicitly. I mean, this is partially because there's now, again, union activity at places like the New School and University of California. Um and, you know, some strides being made. So they, they start to make that part of their classwork to talk about <laughs> the conditions of them, so their own conditions and the conditions the adjuncts were teaching in. And that was something I really didn't exist when I was uh, adjunct myself. And I was like, wow, this is really impressive, you know. It, it's still, though, a hard discussion to have um, for, for folks who are in that space because you, you sort of walk this tightrope between, you know, how much of your own life do the students need to know about but at the same time you know you know as this book demonstrates i think i'm trying to think of the right way to phrase this question um we're just a few steps many of us even in professional jobs are just a few steps away from from some of these consequences yeah absolutely i mean there's a i 2015 survey that found that 62% of adjuncts made less than 20,000 a year. And I'm sure it's probably worse by now. I mean, this was, uh, uh, a while ago. Um, I had come up with something in one of my pieces called a fair labor seal or rating for colleges and universities, Mm. uh, which would affect colleges where they live, their public image. And the ratings would be based on factors like how much of the college's faculty is non-tenure track. Um, uh, U.S. News and World Report famously ranks colleges and uh, badly, but yes, badly, and they don't include uh, or they barely include labor as a concern. But I was like, if this was fair labor, it could be like fair trade, where you'd shame liberal parents into not sending their kids to fancy schools that are um, treating their adjuncts badly. They would include the actual uh, whether you know pay they got whether they could unionize or whether they have access to healthcare plans, um, you know, same naming and shaming is what I was thinking of it, you know? Yeah. It, it's a tough, it's a tough nut to crack. I, I do research in this and um, there's one study that shows that uh, a sample of like 12 universities or something, there were like 30 some odd different names given to faculty working off the tenure track. And, mm-hmm. and so to a large degree, most universities almost have no idea um, who's doing what for them. 
No. And like, I've, you know, what I thought, I thought of uh, when I was thinking more specifically about this, I was thinking, what if they had a positive campaign, look for the union label kind of yeah. thing. Remember the ILGW, yeah, yeah, right. like about colleges, like made it into like a selling point because colleges are now, you know, they're giving per cal sheets and swimming pools and organic meals to try to seduce. Uh, what if they had, oh, we have a union to be part of the cell. I mean, obviously this would be probably liberal arts schools where the kids would be, you know, caring, but if we can get them to care about, you know, as they seem to about Gaza and about all this other stuff, like why not getting them to care about what happened to their professors, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, it's probably a, um, it's, it's a good idea. Um, so <laughs> along the same uh, lines, uh, there's a couple of folks in, in this section, they kind of reappear. Um, and I think we could probably talk about it here. Ray Suarez. Yeah. So Ray is a dear uh, colleague and he and I have done two seasons of a show that's sort of based on some of these people's stories. Actually, you might want to listen to it's called going for broke. The first season was with the nation and the second season um, was with and kind of Wisconsin Public Radio, to the best of our knowledge. Um, and we have a lot of these stories, audio and like with nice soundscapes and stuff. But Ray uh, had been on our board as an advisor and then he had this uh, terrible setback. Not only was he like, whatever, laid off and, and was having trouble getting work because he was sort of aging out of what the uh, media employers were looking for, but then he also had, he got cancer and then he had a dental emergency when he had a bike accident. And so he, he wrote about it. It was called some, that sinking feeling, I think. And it's so moving and intense. And, and that actually is one of the pieces that has had the most traction that we've ever run, because I think a lot of people saw themselves in him. I mean, he was the Puerto Rican Walter Cronkite, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. and people, and I, I mean, I love him. He's amazing. And it's like, if this could happen to him, who couldn't this happen to? And I think that's another thing that I try to do with the EHRP work is that, that thing, which is not, which is, you know, uh, there's conventional ideas about what poverty looks like and it might not be Ray Suarez, but there's, uh, that's why precarity, I think to me is a better phrase, you know? And, and the, the, couple of pieces in here by Joe Williams, uh, I think, yeah. sort of speak to some of the same issues. Yeah, who's like an incredible writer, and he uh, was laid off, and he wound up working in a shoe store, Yeah, um, having his wages garnished, um, being evicted. And because he was such a good reporter, he just started reporting it. And I I guess that's part of what I think the, the sell of being include, including people who are more economically on the edge when you're recruiting independent reporters because they can um, they can really speak to questions of housing insecurity and they can they have insight but they also can report their own experience and it's like to me it, it really changes changes the intensity of a piece and makes the the suffering and the experience understandable. And, and again, just just so we just so we make this point, there are so many stories in here that that do have a frame of, of of you know suffering, but there's also some really hopeful stories in here as well. And I think Joe Williams is one of those where um, at some point he, he there are a couple of different essays in here by him, but at some point there's a um, uh, I don't know how to call it a redemption story, but something where he he reestablishes himself. Yeah. And he, and often, uh, our, our, 
uh, grantees stop needing us or not often, but on a regular basis. And that can be sort of bittersweet, but um, I feel like he has a full-time job now, so I haven't heard from him lately, you know, um, but it's a testament to how talented they are and, um, and maybe also to the changing recruiting patterns of some publications that realize we do need this. We can't just keep having David Brooks write about this. <laughs> I don't know why. I just really have to keep saying that. <laughs> I, I get it. I, I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, but and also some folks who who really I like. I have to tell you, I was incredibly challenged by the piece on uh, living without a home in Alaska. Yeah, you were challenged. Like you felt like this is insane, or I, there was a part. <laughs> There it was is a little part- insane. We should, we should explain what it's about. So, he, oh, so his name is Joe Ford. I yeah. thought this was a wonderful, I think some it's of their- It's a great piece. It's really wonderfully written. And I just want to also say that, you know, Barbara was an iconoclast. I guess I'm a little iconoclastic. And, you know, these are idiosyncratic, some of these pieces. And I think that's important too. You don't want to have this uniform- dirge-like social justice voice. You, you know, there are people who, who have- Maybe they're lying to themselves and to us, but they they find pleasure in their unusual circumstances, and they're you know sometimes have flipped the script on their deprivation, and that that's what Joe Ford was doing. He's living in freezing temperatures in Alaska, um, in a tent, um, and we have to pay him through gift cards because he was unbanked. Um, we actually cannot track him down. Um, wow. So. But he was amazing stylist. It's, it's, it's a like, beautiful, yeah, it's a beautiful Jonathan piece. Jonathan Swift, so funny. Um, the same is true of June Thunderstorm's piece about smoking. It's in yes. the craze of cigarettes. Yeah, and these are like I, I, I want to include these people because there is a satirical tradition. It's like down and out in, in Paris and London, yeah. or nickel and dimes, where there's a dark humor and a perversity of a perversity of flipping these narratives that comes through, um, and it's unexpected, and it's not just like placards you know it's something a little weirder yeah yeah and 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 again so important for again it just i i kept going back to that piece and thinking wow what would that be <laughs> so yeah it, it it it's a great it's a great essay um so the final section we we've kind of mentioned it already but i want to i want to talk about it in a little bit um we get to this very fraught idea of class um, and again, this is a really big question, but reading the selection of essays, what do you think class means for people today? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think it's it's often, as I said, it has these oblique um, phrases like opportunity, mobility. Uh, we've been told that we, you know, it's in certain funding situations, we shouldn't use the word inequality. And I guess like that was part of why I felt like putting class in there is like in your face. Um, and, and it, it, I also was trying to find a place to put some of the work that was more analytic. Um, I mean, there's still people who've experienced these things firsthand, but it's also, some of it is more analytic, uh, just about what it's like to go to college when you're, uh, not privileged and you're surrounded by rich people. Uh, or what does it mean to be bad with money, which was a great piece by Joshua Hunt. Um, who, because he he didn't have money, he fell in love with a rich boy in college, and just the kind of paradoxes around that. Um, and uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess it just I was wanting to put more 
uh, I don't want to say theoretical, but things that are more structural into it, you know, as much as I could. So that was, that was where, where that came from. Yeah, they're structural, but but at the same time, the the essays in here again, they're they're deeply felt. Like that that notion of you know being at college in a place where right, well, the experience of being in like I know this from graduate school, right? Just mm-hmm. you know, there were there were people whose oh my parents were professors and whatever, and and there I was and I wasn't and <laughs> didn't have parents like that, um, and and it it matters. Yeah. And, and, you know, Astra Taylor, who's fantastic and wrote a, uh, introduction, um, you know, she makes the point that, you know, when, when she and I were young, everyone was middle-class and this was the sort of the high point of the neoliberal, whatever you want to say about that word, find third wave Democrats, project, right? Where, oh, just let's have global trade and NAFTA and everything will be good, you know, and all these kind of, um, you know, corporate uh, freedoms and, uh, you know, whatever charter schools, right? And we've sort of discovered that that is not true. This um, big undifferentiated mass, um, you know, people at the bottom, few rich people at the top, but the myth was everyone lived in between, but I think 2008 really changed that for a lot of people. It certainly did for me. And people were foreclosed on and lost their job. They were squeezed, which was part of the project I for my book, Squeezed. And, you know, we, we kind of start to rethink it, I think, as a country. So that's the short history. I mean, uh, Astros has this amazing quote from Stuart Hall, the, the British uh, critical theorist, that race is the modality in which classes lived. So that even if we don't see class necessarily, uh, I think gender is too, honestly. Um, if you don't see class in, in things, uh, you, you know, you probably are seeing it in the way, in some of the ways in which your identity, uh, that you're doing invisible labor in the home or mm-hmm. that you experience microaggressions or bias. Like, uh, it's through these other identities that then classes becomes visible. <clears throat> so, again, this is just it's an astonishing collection of essays. And and really, um, I thank you for for offering it to us. Um, before I let you go today, I have two, I think, related questions. Um, the first is, again, something that I ask of all authors. Um, what are you working on next? You know, I'm working on work around inequality and healing. Mm. So both mental and physical healing. Um, I had long COVID. And so that sort of got my mind to, to thinking about that and who, who gets to heal and who doesn't and how. So it's sort of the rough outline. Um, a piece of it's going to be appearing in the nation in April, but like it may be a longer project or it may just be a set of pieces, but that that's what I've been thinking about personally. Organizationally, uh, we are doing all kinds of cool stuff, um, building an infrastructure, you know, more infrastructure for our organization. And we've created a site of experts who are closer to working class experience called workingsources.org. Hmm. And Tom, I'd love it if you ever taught it or used it in your classes and let us know, because uh, I you, you teach reporting or? I don't teach reporting. Uh, I, I'm in the communication end of communication and journalism. 
I still but think I, it could be useful because you're like, give them this working sources thing and be like, how is this group different from who, the traditional experts? Because yeah. I was struck from when I when I went to journalism and school in the late 90s that um, they were just like an expert is someone who goes has a, uh, a PhD. Leads some, <laughs> yeah, leads a big organization, went to an Ivy League school. And even if that, you know, they reporters kept reproducing the quotes from somebody who really wasn't worthy. It was like, that was how expertise was discovered. It was through consensus. It wasn't through, um, actual reading because it's too, too hard when you're on deadline sometimes to figure out what, who is an expert, who's not, um, famous and, or bolstered by some big organization. So that was the, that's a project of working sources to try to give another list. So workingsources.org. And then, you know, just, doing the usual stuff we do. We have fellows, uh, many of whom have experienced financial struggle. Um, working on a big project that's coming out with Mother Jones with like eight part project of labor and labor photography oh. um, to try to make labor more visible. Um, and the first piece of it, it's being published this month. Yeah. It's not, oh, not my own, but I'm editing it. Yeah. And that's part of the economic hardship reporting project. Yeah, exactly. They're okay, all co-published great. because uh, the way we saw the, or I thought of it initially with Barbara was just like everyone in nonprofit media tries to create a destination site and that's very expensive. That makes, you know, you have to put a lot of resources into design and into your back end and uh, your IT and all this kind of stuff. I was like, well, actually, if we want to change the media, one way to do it is to get it co-published universally. So every piece is co-published and it gets a much bigger readership. The writers get further, which this is to support writers as an organization partially. And then our organization gets uh, more broad and broad recognition too. And like, so, yeah. Well, that sounds interesting. And, and again, yeah, I, I will take a look at the, uh, at your, at the website you just, you, that you just mentioned. I, I'm teaching right now a class in, um, social movements. So that's probably, oh, cool. that would be, uh, appropriate for that. Yeah, definitely. And, and I'm trying to think if we have anything else that would be good. Ah, oh, there's so much good, um, that's okay. Yeah. yeah you, you let me your, know though. You have, you have your reading list up? Uh, not, no, not publicly. <laughs> That'd be cool. This is actually, I wrote a book a while ago. It's probably dated, but it's called Republic of Outsiders. And it's about yep. a range of different social groups, you know? Yeah. Well, again, work. Alyssa Court, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. I really appreciate this book and I really appreciate all of your work. Okay. Thank you again, Tom. Uh, once again, my guest today has been Alyssa Quart, the editor with David Wallace of Going for Broke, Living on the Edge in the World's Richest Country from Haymarket Books. My name is Tom DeSena, and you are listening to the New Books Network. <laughs>